Our preaching continues this week, and um, you'll notice this is one of our seasons of the year. Um, I almost, I had Advent in my head because this is one of the few times of rhythms where we um, step kind of out of the normal rhythm of, of our uh, moving through the Word together. Um, and so in the season of Lent, not Advent, um, we're looking through the movement in the expectation in the need and the building of what's happening um, as God's people have turned away from him. Um, so looking through, through Genesis, and if Lent's unfamiliar to you by name, it's this um, season of expectation as we approach our recognition of Easter. Um, and so our, our recognition of Easter is, you know, kind of crowned on um, the resurrection in celebrating the resurrection and that being the Lord's day and the new creation and the life that we have in him. Um, and it's kind of strange that as part of our celebrating the resurrection, we celebrate um, crucifixion. And um, we celebrate, you know, not just this powerful thing of God um, raising his son from the dead, but we celebrate the death. Um, we celebrate um, the, the criminal death of a Messiah. Um, we celebrate an innocent man whose, whose life is, is given up, not taken from him, um, but he gives it up. And it seems, um, seems a little bit strange kind of in the same way that um, if you hear, I guess maybe a kid talk about what their funeral would be like, and they say, well, I want to have a big party, and I want to have this and this and this, and talking about death in a way that's so celebratory. But there's something to that. Um, and so the remembrance of Jesus' death, it's a sorrowful celebration. It's this, this moment of history that's filled with anguish and injustice, um, but it gives us good and right opportunity to celebrate. We see clearly because of, um, because of the death that he, that he dies is the death that we deserve. Um, the death that he dies, he dies in our place. And he does it not reluctantly, not being dragged along, but he does it willingly. Uh, in our high school Sunday school class, we've been in these last chapters in, in the gospel according to John. Um, and so we've kind of been walking through this even as we approach um, Easter in this Lent season. And um, last week, seeing Jesus bowing his head and his declaration, it's finished. His giving up of his spirit. Not that it's taken from him, but he gives it up himself. For what? What's he doing this for? What's so grand, what's so big, what's so major that God could possibly do something as big as this? What would require that the God of heaven and earth, the creating, ruling God, um, this, this God of absolute authority and holiness, what's such a big deal that it would cost him, him giving of himself, his son coming and giving up his life as a sacrifice? And the answer uh, is very full. The, the answer has lots of dimension to it. Uh, it's very robust. In part, we say it's his love. You know, his love is a driving force. Um, his love is so amazing, so, so divine. Love that demands our soul, our life, our all. And, and the Father's love we see as grand. It's amazing. Um, but that's not the only driving factor. That's not the only train you know, we talk about this collision of wreckage at the cross. And we see that love is there. 
And the other dimension of what makes this event so grand and so astounding um, is the work of our sin. Is that sin that is at work in us today and the sin that has been at work in us as a people from these first generations um, has been ripping through families, ripping through hearts, ripping through minds. And it's, it comes on the first pages of Scripture. Um, we see God's love emerging, and we see this wreckage of sin emerging. Some things need a lot of training and cultivating. Um, this is one of those times of years where um, if you're a gardener, I know people are starting to prep if you're going to do your planting, and um, there are good ways to do that. There are you know, very intentional things that we do to cultivate and train. Um, and so some things we know need a lot of training and cultivating to grow. Um, this is one of the reasons, if you're going to keep something and care for something, this is one of the reasons we've never bought orchids. Um, orchids are nice to look at in the grocery store. But what I know about orchids um, is that they really need just the right environment to flourish. And uh, we've not been the, the type of people to, to tune in um, to caring for plants that well. Um, we've had friends that that have had uh, such a good interest, such a strong interest in orchids that they've like taken in rehab orchids from other people. And so, you know, it's these, these beat up orchids that have just been dragging along and they've not been cared for. And, um, you know, they get put in a little greenhouse and they get manicured and they get spoken to real nice. And then eventually they bloom again. Uh, and it's kind of this amazing thing. So we, um, you know, we're, we're spathophyllum people, and you may not know spathophyllum, um, but spathophyllum is, um, it's the first plant I was ever given, at least that I remember being given. So uh, Rhoda's mom, who's here, the first apartment that I moved into um, the year before Rhoda and I got married, she gave us a spathophyllum. And so there's this little potted green plant, um, long stems, kind of long, long leaves, and um, if you're taking care of it indecently, it'll have this white bloom that you know, is curled and cupped, and it's a really nice looking plant. And the great thing about this plant that we've had since, um, I guess, 2003, is this thing has been through a lot of wreckage. Like, it has been, um, we put it in a car that was in tow one time, and it just got baked in the heat, and the whole thing withered away. Um, it's been so dehydrated that like, it's lost all of its leaves, but the root made it, and it came back again. Um, we fed this thing frozen. I mean, you, you name it, and this plant has gone through just about anything you could think as we've forgotten about it and neglected it and not cared it, and it's rebounded. Um, you know, give it a little squirt of the, the bottled plant food stuff and, um, and blast it with the occasional spurt of water, and the thing bloomed again this year after just minimal care. It hasn't bloomed in forever. And so some things are really resilient, um, some things are really hardy in our lives. They don't need help. Um, you know, this is the story of kudzu that we hate so much. This is our, uh, if, if you've had your Bradford pears blooming these past weeks, we're reminded of the frustration of the Bradford pear. Um, and sin is one of those things that it doesn't need much help gaining territory. It doesn't need encouragement. It's got its own momentum. It's got its own agenda. Um, it has advocates. And so the real estate of our hearts and minds, um, you know, we think we can give an inch to sin and it'll keep an inch. 
but it's quickly moving, quickly striving for more territory. Um, and this is the story of the first generations. This is what we hear in Scripture. As we have this, you know, this event of Adam and Eve and sin gets introduced and we think, okay, they're going to take a breather. It's going to be okay for a bit. It's not going to be that bad. And then things start getting wrecked. Um, and it instinctively exposes what we believe about ourselves. It exposes what we believe about humanity because we think um, humanity should work like technology. Um, we think humanity should be like that generation one product that comes out. It's got its bugs. Everybody doesn't know, but the kinks get worked out. Generation two, generation three, man, this, this thing is really working well. And we just think, what's the potential? We can only go up from here. This can only get better and better. And it shows that's what we believe about our humanity, um, about what's at work in us, is all we need is a little tinkering and tuning. If we just tinker and tune and stay on the path, we're really going to get somewhere on our own. And so the growth of sin in these first generations, it's really stunning. Um, we look through Genesis 4, and we see the story unfolding. We see the sinfulness of the heart and, um, and what's required from the love of God in him giving himself to restore us to him. Um, I know alliteration, I've been really critical at times of alliteration because I thought it was hokey. And um, if we can get past that, it might actually be helpful. And so as we think through and listen to the story of Genesis 4 um, and hear the events of Cain and Abel, these two brothers, um, if you can hear through the lens of concern, conviction, and confession, um, I hope that'll be a, a helpful um, a helpful framework. So through the language of confession, or sorry, concern, conviction, and confession. Um, so again, I know I've had my, my unfair share of resistance for alliteration, but um, look with me if you would as we read through Genesis 4, 1 through 16. I hear from our God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask that um, as your word has been read, Lord, that your spirit would be at work. Uh, Lord, granting us ears to hear, Lord, eyes to see, um, hearts that are softened and would respond and be shaped by you. Uh, Father, we pray that um, that you would use this time to make us um, more and more um, in the likeness of your son, that you would expose places in our hearts where we've been resistant, uh, Lord, that we would know the invitation and goodness and gladness of what you set before us in Jesus and the life that's in him. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Uh, reading through and studying this passage um, with the help of commentators who are you know, really strong in original languages, um, it gives me a lot of appreciation for what's in the Bible. And um, just as, you know, as it stands alone, as a literary text, it's, it's really quite like, fantastic. Um, it's one of those, when you slow down and you read the Bible, you start to see things. You see its features, and it's this, this experience of looking at a master, master painter um, and the work that he's produced, or you know, some, some marvelous thing of craftsmanship, and glancing at it versus really taking the time to look over its detail. And there's this... Um, there's just this nuance that comes alive the more and more time that you spend in it. Um, and I don't want to go deep down that road just looking at the, the features and the beauty of Scripture. Um, there's so much that's there. But I want to point out a few things that are, I think are really helpful. Um, a few things that are really pointing. Um, so obviously, you know, this is a story that is kind of functionally focused around two brothers. So it's Cain and Abel. And um, the word brother appears here seven times, and it's a focal point showing the relationship. You know, the relationship and the impact of the relationship is, is a major focal point. Um, family is the bond that's devastated here. It's uh, as the story progresses. Um, behind even their Hebrew names, so, the, and I say Hebrew, um, you know, it's written in Hebrew, and the, the brothers, as they're named, Cain and Abel, their, their names themselves tell a story. So looking back at the beginning of this, um, you know, Cain, he's presented here, he's told about as the pride of Eve. She's the one who's telling us about him. Um, she's proud mom. And um, she names how he comes about not as, um, as what the Lord has produced, but what she's produced with the help of the Lord. And so the way this, this comes out, rolls out of her mouth, her celebration of what's happened, she says, um, I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. And it could sound really like, thanks be to God, here's what he enabled to do. Um, but it really reads a whole lot more like, well, I did my part and God was there to help. Um, in this miracle of life, thinking about 
thinking about the discovery of what God has set before them and the discovery and miracle of life that Adam and Eve encounter. Um, you know, their first union, um, they're, they're coming together in this conception of life, in this caring and growing of life, in this deliverance and emerging of life. And um, she kind of just gives God the nod of the hat here. Um, this, this, you know, the guy upstairs, he deserves a shout out for what happened and here's what I produced. And so Eve is this, here's what I produced. And she names him kind of in the spirit of um, the producing. So Cain, his name here, it means to acquire, to get, to possess. Um, so she's the one who's producing. He's the one who's out to acquire, to possess. He's someone who's focused on, um, you know, just in his naming, taking what's his right, uh, what's his by being number one, what's his by being the oldest son. He's the firstborn. And even Abel, as he's mentioned, he's kind of like, well, we don't want to leave Cain out there on his own. So we, you know, we had another kid. Is kind of how he, um, how he gets told about is, and again, in verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. And it's such, Abel is this afterthought. Um, and the way that he's an afterthought, the name, um, the name that he's given, vapor, breath, maybe it's, Man, delivery number one was really hard. Whew, delivery two, that was a breeze. We're going to call him vapor. He's just a breath. You know, we, don't, we don't know what the intensity of the thing was, but there's this um, emphasis on, man, look at what's happened with Cain. Look at what I did. And Abel's this breath of an afterthought. And between the two brothers, you know, we hear what God has set on Adam and Eve and what he's charged them, um, understanding what they're supposed to be doing, what their purpose of life is. There's this creation mandate to go and work and subdue and put your hand to everything. Cain takes after Adam. Um, Adam has spent his time in the garden, cultivating the garden. Sure, he named the animals, but he's not like really having to keep up with them. And so Cain, he's, he's a produce guy. He's working the ground. Uh, while Abel, on the other hand, he's a shepherd. He keeps sheep. And so this range of Everything that God has made to be cared for has care. And so the scene is set with Cain, the one who acquires from the mom who produces. And he's bringing an offering alongside his brother Abel the vapor. And so it's poetic, it's grand. There's a lot to it. So Cain and Abel, they've prepared their offerings. In verses 3 and 4, they tell us about these offerings so Moses writes, he says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. It seems like Cain's bringing from his realm, Abel's bringing from his realm, um, the offering from the fruit of the ground, that's his job, that's his labor. Abel's, bring, Abel's bringing from the sheep. Um, and God has regard for Abel and his offering. But it says he doesn't have regard for Cain and his offering. So why is God being so uptight? Why not say, hey, they're both doing their part. They're both using what they've been given. Isn't this like an even Stephen thing? You know, Cain, he's responsible for this and he's brought some of it. And Abel, he's responsible and he's brought some of this. You know, one guy brings his plants and the other guy brings his animals. 
but the description of the offerings here, they tell us the concern. They tell us the concern of Cain's heart, and they tell us the concern of Abel's heart. And we see their concern being exposed by how God regards them. So Abel's concern, it's the better concern, and so it's helpful. You know, why does he receive regard from the Lord? Uh, why does God engage fully with Abel and, um, and recognize his sacrifice? It's, he brings of the firstborn. He brings of the fat of the portion. He brings the best of the best. Um, there's an ordered way to say he brings that which is greatest, which has the most honor, that which is of highest value. That's what he brings before God, and that shows the concern of his heart as he says, the best of what I have isn't for me. It's not, I'm going to keep and hold this back. Uh, the best of what I have, I want to set before God. Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground. He just brings an offering. You know, he's got some stuff. Um, it's a good year, good harvest. He's going to bring some of it. It doesn't say he brought his first fruits. He brought the most splendorous of his harvest. He saw the honor that God gave him, and he returned full honor. This is what's missing from Cain's offering. This is what's missing from Cain's heart. Is If we're going to name um, what's happening with him, is we would say um, his concern is, again, he wants to acquire. He wants to possess. We could say Cain's really withholding. We don't know if this has been um, years and years and years after bringing offering before God, and, um, and Cain's concern has dulled and turned inward. We don't have the full story um, in terms of this years of context or whatever we have here, but um, we see the concern that's on Abel's heart, and we see the concern that's on Cain's heart. And yet the way that Moses speaks about this, he turns and he shows us God's concern. He shows us God's concern for seeing what's brought by a pure heart in Abel and um, in his concern for Cain, he doesn't say, you know what, he showed up. You know, he brought something today. Um, he doesn't gloss over what's happening inside Cain. He gives regard for his Abel and his offering because the two are bound together. What Abel offers is a really, it's a showing of what's happening inside him. And the same thing, this concern that God has for Cain is shown because he can see what's inside of him. It's one of these things where, um, you know, it makes me ask, why not just give him a pass? We talk about the language of, um, and I'm sure you've, you've talked about this, is uh, picking our battles, right? Cain showed up. We could say he did his fair best. Um, why is God being so picky about his battles here? And it's because God's concern is so deep. God's concern cuts not just for what shows up on the surface, but he cares for what's happening in the heart. It's not this um, giving Cain just a, go ahead, don't worry about it. Um, but he throws on this engine light. He throws ahead this stop check in Cain's life. He says, we need to take a moment. We need to really check out what's going on here. Um, and if you're kind of hearing your own experience in the situation that Cain finds himself in is, He's kind of been moving through the motions. He's cruising through. Um, maybe he thinks everything's on the level or under the radar, and he's just gotten a major wake-up call. 
He's gotten called out. Uh, he's gotten himself dramatically interrupted and gotten challenged and pressed on what's happening inside his heart. That's really uncomfortable. That feels really awkward. Um, that feels just horrible. Um, I, don't, I don't know if what sides you found yourselves on that. If you've been in the position of saying, like, I really love and care for this person, and I see the way that they're headed, and, man, i got to speak to this, because they're going down a really bad direction here. Um, maybe you found yourself in that where somebody's challenged you or pressed you, and um, you don't really want to deal with it. You really just want to, like, move on from that. The reason God is pressing Cain um, isn't because he's hard-nosed. It's not because he's cruel and he likes to watch people squirm. That can kind of be part of our mixed motives. We want to press people's stuff because we're like, yeah, I get to watch you squirm. But here God's being merciful to Cain because his concern isn't against him. His concern's for him. We would say love covers over a multitude of sins, but the love of God boldly and courageously shines light and exposes dark places in us. It shows that Cain's anger here, it's really deep, and it's running, it cuts a deep current in him. Um, his anger, he's, he's responding, and he's very angry, and it says his face is, his face is turned, and um, you know, it's, he can't hide it. It's not a small thing that God's uncovered. Um, these aren't little rocks with little bugs. These are massive overturns with rot exposed inside. He's, Cain's concerned about himself. His younger brother's gotten honor. He's the older brother. He's the firstborn. He's the one that should get priority. And his withholding heart's just been exposed. He's been keeping the best for himself, and he's been called out. And what God's doing for Cain is he's calling him to this hard place, not because he wants to watch him squirm, because he wants to invite him into a better freedom. He wants to invite him into a better freedom of not holding on to the best for himself, of not being one who's striving for producing and gaining. Um, he sees the, the twists of his own heart in the direction he's heading, and he wants to free him from that. There's this compulsion that's growing in him, and God says, this is going to take you in a really bad place, and it's disrupting your heart before me, and it's disrupting how you're carrying out your call in life. This is the time to step in. And so when God speaks to Cain, he speaks words of concern. Um, verses 6 and 7, read through here with me. He says, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? And if you do not, well, sin's crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. This is a, Cain, tell me what's going on. Now, God already knows. He's not trying to find out. He's not looking for new information. But he's setting the challenge before Cain of, Cain, open up what's going on inside you. Cain, remember, I'm here for you to approach me. I'm here and I'm ready to receive what you would bring to me. Cain, okay, well, you're in a bumpy spot right now. Brace yourself, man. There's more down the road. 
I'm not a God who turns away from you. I'm a God who's in this thing with you. This is a dangerous and critical moment. Sin's ready to jump all over you and eat you alive. Now's the time to sharpen your aim, tune in your ears, get your senses straight. Um, There are moments that we go through in our lives that ring like this. There are moments of our conscience being turned up. There are moments of um, seeing our concern exposed and um, these are familiar and hard feelings, but hear God's restorative voice. Hear God's restorative aim. He's not trying to beat down on Cain. Um, He's not trying to shove his nose in anything. He's trying to help him see it for what it is and move through it with him. This is an invitation that God's given him because he's got this downturned face and he's saying, look back to me. Look back to me. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. Let's move forward together. When Cain speaks, he speaks words of conviction. Um, He speaks words of conviction, and they're words that um, they show his conviction of his heart, and they're words that convict him by who he speaks to and who he's ready to give voice to. God's spoken to him, and he's been silent. God's spoken to him about the hardness of his heart, and he's not had any words in return. When he goes and he speaks now, verse 8 names, it says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When he's ready to give voice to something, um, he's speaking out of a bad place. He's speaking out of some, some of the early manuscripts. He said, let's go out to the field. If there's something to take care of, In Cain's heart and what he cares about, he doesn't want to take care of business before God. He wants to take care of business of satisfying what he feels on his terms. And we can talk about um, just being who we are, just feeling what we feel, being true to ourselves. Cain's being very true to himself right now. He's being very true to the emotion that is building in his heart and directing in his life. But he's not running that through the invitation of God to bring that before him. That's huge when we think about um, the voice of our culture and where it tells us how we follow our emotions, how we regard our emotions. Is They're there for a reason. Cain feels this intense anger because it exposes his sin, not because he's supposed to run with it. And he's the guy who, um, you know, he sees the no trespassing sign and so he keeps walking past that. And he sees the beware of dog sign, and he's you know, walking on the property, and he keeps going past that. And then he sees the sign that says trespassers will be shot, survivors will be shot again, and he keeps on moving. He goes down the road, and he's ignoring all the signs, he's ignoring all the invitation, and he's walking into his own destruction, and it's flourishing. Um, sin doesn't need help. It's running full speed. His foot is slammed on the pedal. We keep on moving in the direction that we're going because we think it's not a big deal. We keep on moving in the direction that we're going because we don't rightly encounter what's happening inside us. Um, We downplay things. We diminish things. This is just small sin. 
this is just little things that I'm training up in my heart. They're not really going to make a difference in my life. Um, Spurgeon writes about this, that this is one of the biggest difficulties of the Christian life, is that when we first are encountered by God's holiness in the offer of the gospel, and we see our sin, our hearts are so tender. Our hearts are so tender, and our conviction runs so deep, um, and it's so hard to stay in that place. It's hard to stay in that place of being tender-conscienced to our own sin and to see it for what it is and to hate it and turn from it. Um, and it gains territory and real estate and we get more comfortable with it and we grow in callousness. That's what's happening is Cain's heart is hardening. It's a thing that speaks familiar to us. It should, it should ring true in us. Um, it should give us warning in our own lives. And when God's speaking to Cain here, he speaks words of conviction. Where's your brother? Again, he's not curious. Um, he already knows. He's curious to give Cain an opportunity to answer him again because he's not been talking to him. And so God asks, will Cain's heart be convicted of the wrong that he's done? But Cain's conviction shows that he's just hardened towards God. Um, this is a whole lot deeper than what we see in Adam and Eve and God's approach to them. God comes to Adam and Eve. Um, you know, where are you? Came into the garden. Where are you? Oh, God, we were hiding and, um, you know, we were hiding because we knew our nakedness. And in our nakedness, we needed to hide. We needed to hide and we needed to cover. And, um, you know, we were ashamed and things are going very poorly, God. They're nervous and they can name some things. They do some blame shifting. They do some, um, some cowardly deflecting. Cain's response to God calling him out um, goes a lot further down the road of a hardened heart. Cain's response to God's question is just bold-faced lying. Bold-faced, what's my responsibility? Am I the shepherd's shepherd? I'm not in charge of my brother. He's dismissive. He's degrading. He doesn't speak truthfully. And while Cain, he won't speak truthfully, it's Abel's blood that speaks well. The only mention of Abel, um, of him really speaking or giving voice to anything, you know, we don't, we don't hear his human voice, but we hear the voice of his, his blood, this testimony conviction from his innocent blood that cries out to God. Cain can't truthfully open his mouth. And so the ground opens its mouth for, for Abel's injustice. God speaks truth to Cain, and Cain can't speak truthfully. He won't speak truthfully. He's unwilling to speak truthfully back to God. The conviction that God speaks to Cain is a conviction that involves curse. It's a curse that's deepened from what we see Adam and Eve and what they've lost. Um, they've lost the garden. They've lost intimacy with God. They've lost intimacy with each other. The curse of, um, of thorn and thistle, of pain and childbirth, of sin and death is opened. And what happens to Cain is he's cursed in a way that really, um, it gets at his heart. He's the producer. He's the striving to obtain. He's the one who wants to go out and get 
and put his hand to something, God turns that upside down for him. No longer will the thing that you've been striving for, that you've used to show your heart for yourself and not your heart for God, I'm going to turn that against you. No longer will the ground yield to its strength. He takes a, a hard cut and a hard blow at Cain's idolatry, at the thing that he set on his heart, and he's cursed from the land even further as he's set outside from Eden even further as the ground no longer does what he wants, and as he loses even more relationship with family. Uh, Not just that he's taken his brother's life and that he's isolated there. Uh, Not just that he has caused devastation to his mom and his dad. Um, If you can imagine the hardship of, well, how'd you lose your son? Well, uh, his brother killed him. Um, There's this, this subtle thing that we read through and we read over and we miss the horror of it. In verses 13 and 14, they give Cain's first expression that bears some element of truth. And here Cain gives confession of what's on his heart. Cain says to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. You may have picked up on Cain's emphasis. You may have picked up on the thing that Cain's focused on. My punishment. Um, Hey, I know I killed my brother, but my punishment's real bad. I know I just destroyed my family relationships, but, oh, this punishment. Um, Are you sure? Are you sure about this? Who gets the blame for what is dealt out to Cain? He doesn't say, I know, Lord that I'm getting what I've deserved. I know, Lord, that I've caused this to myself. I know, Lord, that the isolation that I'm, in, that I'm introducing in my life and in this, this family setting, um, he doesn't take it on himself, but he says, it's God who's um, responsible for his punishment. It's God who he attributes to his curse because he's so filled with himself. He's singularly concerned. Whoever finds me is going to kill me, God. I'm afraid for my life not grieving the life that he took. And here's where God's merciful to him. He's been merciful throughout, giving invitation to Cain to meet with him, to speak with him, to hear and see into his heart. But God continues to be merciful as he confesses his love and care over Cain. And he promises him he'll be protected. God not only tells him he'll be a protected man, but he shows him. It's not just, here by faith, Cain, let me show you by faith. We don't know what this marking that he receives is, um, what makes him as a standout man, what makes him as a protected um, God on him, watchful, no man shall take his life thing. But God is showing this abundant care for him that his life won't be taken by another, that the fear of what he did to someone else won't come back on him. Cain's story, it's a pretty miserable story. Um, It's a pretty miserable story of family. It's a pretty miserable story. Um, It's it's not a success story. It's it's just disappointing. Um, 
we hear him have so many chances and so many opportunities, and he keeps going in the wrong direction every time. The curse spreads, it deepens, sin grows, sin destroys. This is just the second generation of humanity. Death has not been this thing that's coming far off. Death is this thing that's working its way in Cain's heart and working its way between him and his brother. Adam and Eve, they've lost their son. Cain's story is a miserable story, but it's not the last story. We hear through Cain's story, he's the firstborn. He's the firstborn who wrecks and makes a mess out of everything. But Jesus comes as a better firstborn. He doesn't come to obtain for himself. He doesn't come to possess for himself. He doesn't come to strive for himself. But he comes to give up his glory, give up of his honor, give up of his place as, as high king to be low servant. He leaves his place of honor to be among us. Abel's blood speaks a cry. It cries from the ground. It makes the ground speak for him. And it cries out a cry of injustice and a cry of innocent death. Jesus' cry of his blood is so much better because his spilt blood cries out to redeem the guilty and satisfy justice. It's not just the cry of injustice, but it's a cry that cleanses and brings justice. Cain, he names here that he can't bear the punishment. It's too much for him. He's earned it, but he can't take it on. And that gives us ear to hear of Jesus, who when he comes, he bears the punishment in full that we earn, that we deserve. In every turn of Cain and Abel's story, in every growth of sin, we have expectation, we have fullness, we have promise of God meeting it. God shows his concern. God shows his love for us in this. He works his spirit, bringing conviction of our sin, inviting us to confess it and be free from it, welcomed into the life that's in his son. Cain and Abel, it's a huge setup. It's a huge setup of destruction, and it's a huge setup of sin so that we can better see the gospel. The fast-spreading sin that we see is the greater growing deliverance that God brings. And my hope in hearing, my hope in our hearing, um, is that we would see God meeting the growing experience of sin. That we would see God's readiness to go before those who are running from him. That we would see God's mercy inviting and drawing that this would be a sweetness that we've known, that this would be a sweetness that if you've never tasted, if you've never heard the invitation, we read, come without, without money, come buy and eat and drink because God provides good food and good drink for those who are willing to come. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that you would grant us ears to hear hearts to know, lives to respond, Lord, that we would have courage granted to us by your Spirit. 
Father, we rely on faith that is um, greater than what we possess. But Father, faith that is worked by your Spirit strengthening us in our inner being. Lord, we live by faith, hearing that we can confidently confess before you. Lord, that we can know conviction of our sin. And Lord, know your heart for us and what you've established in Jesus to bring us to you. Father, we pray that you would teach us this in our hearts evermore. We ask in his name. Amen.